Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on Health Trip Podcast. So my first Ask Me Anything episode a few weeks ago went so well that my community has asked me to continue doing these every now and then. And so today is another Ask Me Anything episode on women's health. And I have invited on a badass physician to answer your burning questions. I love all the curiosity coming from all you ladies. Thank you so much. It's incredibly frustrating not to get the answers from our doctors to feel rushed and not heard, to finally muster up the courage to talk about such intimate topics only to be dismissed. The more we normalize discussions around vaginas, hormones, sex, body image, and anxiety, the more we help not just ourselves, but those around us, like our daughters and our granddaughters. I'm always searching for pioneers in the field of women's health to introduce you to, and I have found a gem. Dr. Carla D. Girolamo is a double board certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and reproductive endocrinologist who specializes in the care of reproductive age and midlife women. She is also a North American Menopause Society certified menopause practitioner. But what really sets her apart from the rest is that she's also an athlete. She's a fitness trainer and a nutrition coach. How many doctors can you say that about? She's been in the fitness industry her entire life as a recreational athlete and for the last decade as a fitness professional with credentials as a CrossFit level one trainer and certified nutrition coach. As a pioneer in women's performance endocrinology, her focus is on optimizing physical performance in women in high performance professions and female athletes of all ages. A uh, short medical disclaimer before we dive in. By listening to this pot to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. And this entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your minds, and we are going to dig in. Hi, Dr. Carla. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to my community. Well, thank you, Jill, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we dig into answering some of these amazing questions that my community has sent, you're my second guest to do an Ask Me Anything episode. So this is took off a few weeks ago. My community is super excited about it. But before we dive into those questions, can you share a bit about your own personal journey, how you made the decision to sort of lead, transition from the conventional healthcare model into a more functional medicine um, model for yourself? Sure, sure. So I've been a women's health specialist, God, for about 20 years now. And I've spent most of my career as an infertility specialist. So I'm board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, and I'm also board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So I've been a partner at a practice called Boston IVF uh, for the last 17 years. And, um, you know, allopathic medicine has served me very well. It's taught me an awful lot about medicine and it's laid the foundation for my career thus far. 
And then as I've been going through my career, I've always been an athlete. I've always been very much into fitness. And those two worlds of mine ran in parallel for a very long time. And then the more that we've learned about fitness and nutrition and how important it is for everything, my world started to cross where I would have patients coming in to get pregnant who were just terribly unhealthy. They were struggling with obesity or you know, other medical conditions that were preventable just with healthier lifestyle. Yeah. And so it became more apparent that you know, this, is, this is really important and um, you know, getting people healthier is gonna help their infertility. Then I decided to uh, open my own coaching business because I was in that part of my career where it's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to really start to go back to my passion of health and fitness and do something with that. So I did. And what I found was most of the women that were coming to me were midlife. They were 40s, 50s, um, some pro athletes, some recreational athletes, and they were all struggling with menopause. And so I decided, well, you know, that is an extension of my specialty of reproductive endocrinology. I was going to get some special training in menopause. And so I did that. And it was kind of at that point where I realized that, you know what, allopathic medicine doesn't have all the answers. They really don't pay yeah. enough attention to the holistic stuff. You know, there's a lot of well, here, just take a pill for this, you know, and yeah, they talk about fitness and nutrition, but it doesn't go very far. They don't give people resources. They don't give people tools they can actually use to change their lifestyle. They like write the script, give it to you, you know, yeah. um, you know, call me in the morning. So or the time, they don't have the time. And, and that's the other thing too, uh, who has the time to do all that? So that's when I was realizing that, you know, allopathic medicine doesn't have all the answers. You know, there's a lot to be taken from osteopaths, from naturopaths, and it's really a multidisciplinary approach to dealing with women's hormones in general, no matter what stage of life you're in, but particularly menopause, because that yeah. is a growing specialty in and of itself. Yeah. So that's what my journey has been like. It's taken me a lot of years to really see it and experience it, but I'm glad I still have enough time left in my career where I can really make a difference with it. You know, being a doctor, did that also impact the way that you approached, um, I don't know how old you are or if you're in menopause, but we seem to be around the same age. Um, did that affect how you approached it for yourself? Did you ever feel like you weren't getting the answers you needed for you and your own journey? That's a great question. I, I am 52 and I am menopausal. I, if I make it to my 53rd birthday without a period, which is in July, then I will officially be menopausal. Um, and it, it's funny because my own menopausal experience has been very much separate from my other hat that I wear as a physician. As a matter of fact, the first hot flash I ever had, I thought I was septic and had to go to the emergency room. I, I woke up in the middle of the night with this hot flash and it was, I was 41. I was very young at the time. And I'm like, what the heck is this? You know, I'm like, am I infected? Do I have the plague? You know, you start thinking all these crazy things right. in the middle of the night. And then right. once I, I took myself out of the emotion of it, um, I realized, oh my God, I'm having a hot flash. And then it went mm -hmm. away. And, you know, I probably didn't have one for another couple of years after that. And then more recently, I was seeing patients this was in the, within the last year. 
And um, I started seeing these flashing lights in, in front of my, my right eye. I'm like, what is this? And it started to get worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, oh my God, am I having a stroke? And then I was debating on taking myself to the emergency room because I didn't know what was happening. And then mm -hmm. when I sat back, the headache then started to come. And I said, oh, this must be a migraine. This was new to me. I had not had this before. And then it all came together. It's like, okay, you know, I'm in late perimenopause. I'm almost menopausal. We know that really strange things can happen with headaches that you might've never had before. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's been challenging. It's scary for me too, even knowing what's going on, because yeah. when it's happening to you immediately, you don't necessarily know what it is. Even when you have the knowledge base to figure it out, you still don't necessarily know. Um, yeah. But I haven't gone to traditional doctors for my menopause symptoms because, you know, they're not as well educated as I would like them to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate enough to be in this field where I can answer my own questions. Yeah, you're lucky. That's great. Yeah. So this is a great segue to my first question from one of my community members. She says, I'm 52 in menopause. She works out six to seven days a week and she's gaining weight. She eats pretty well, sleeps okay, drinks occasionally. And her doctor says that she doesn't need to take hormones since she doesn't have hot flashes, but she also can't lose weight. So she wants to know, why can't I lose weight? So that is an extremely loaded question, but um, I'm going to throw that one to you. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with that one. Yeah. Um, let's first talk about weight gain. This is such a common thing um, that is experienced by women in this age group. And there's a few things happening. Uh, one is that metabolism changes um, along the spectrum of our insulin. Insulin is a hormone that helps us deal with sugar, okay? So we take in carbohydrates, carbohydrates are metabolized down to sugar, sugar travels to the muscles and all the cells of the body, and then insulin drives the sugar into the cells so they can use it for fuel. That's basically what insulin does. And any extra sugar is stored as fat. That's a very basic, basic boiled down description of yep. that biochemical yep. pathway. So what's happening as we get older, particularly when perimenopause and menopause comes, is that insulin isn't working as efficiently as it used to. And so it's not quite as good at or as efficient in moving sugar into the cells. And so there's a lot of extra sugar out there and that's getting stored as fat. So when maybe in our thirties, we could have that ice cream cone every night in the summertime, our bodies can't handle sugar like that anymore when you're in your 40s and 50s when you're going through that phase. And it correlates. There's a lot of very complicated biochemistry that interacts between estrogen and insulin. But um, as we start to lose our ovarian function, our insulin changes. And that's one of the reasons um, is because it becomes less efficient. The other thing that um, that really influences weight gain is the stress response. And people mm -hmm. don't think a lot about this. Mm -hmm. in, in this stage of life where ovarian function is declining and that estrogen buffer is going away, I think Stacey Sims, Dr. Stacey Sims puts you know, a great analogy to this. She describes cycling, our normal cycling as reproductive age women as a buffer to stress. It's kind of like that cushion where if you fall from a height, you land on a nice cushion. That cushion kind of goes away and gets a lot thinner as we get older. So when you fall, that crash landing hurts a little bit more. Um, and so when, when 
we have that knee-jerk reaction that, oh my God, I'm gaining weight because my insulin's changing and other metabolism changing too. First thing you do is you train more and you eat less. And mm -hmm. so then what that does is that triggers a stress response in your body. And the body's like, oh my God, there's a famine coming. And mm -hmm. so what happens is when the body senses stress and it's sensing stress more and it's having a little bit more difficulty dealing with stress because that buffer is going away, is it holds on to fat. And so we all think, and maybe, maybe, maybe your listener does, but in my experience, most people, including myself, you think you eat well, uh -huh. but you have to eat differently at this stage of life. Now that doesn't mean you can never have that ice cream cone again. It, it means that you just kind of have to make sure that you are fueling appropriately, that your workouts are being appropriately fueled, that you are not eating just one meal at the end of the day and exercising early in the day and your body's exercising without fuel. You want to make sure that you're getting fuel throughout the day, that it's not excessive in, in sugar and that you're getting enough protein. That's another huge thing is that you're getting yeah. enough protein because the body's looking for that. So a lot of times we may think we're fueling well, but we may not be fueling quite as well as we could be in reference to our physical activity. And so I usually suggest that my clients see a nutritional consultant, someone who can take a fresh set of eyes on the outside and really yeah. critically look at what your feeling looks like, because that's huge. Um, and managing that stress response is huge too. You have to let your body know there isn't a famine coming. So you need to fuel it, but you also need to uh, take good care of your tissues. You need to stretch. You need to foam roll. You need to do the mindfulness. You need to pay more attention to that stress response than we did before because that buffer is gone. So gaining weight is a body's response to stress. And so you have to manage that stress better. And so what does the conversation look like with someone who comes in and wants to inquire about taking hormone replacement therapy? Because when you balance the hormones, all of that's going to work a lot better for you. And of course, you know, we have the WHI, um, the, that initiative to deal with in terms of how it scared a lot of women and physicians from um, having that conversation in the first place. I mean, decades of women didn't even get to have that conversation. Yes, without a doubt. And still today, it impacts yeah. uh, prescribers, prescribing practices, as well as people's, um, you know, wanting to take it. Yeah. But I approach that conversation, it's always a risk benefit equation. And that yeah. equation is different for every single woman. So when someone comes to me, I want to know, well, what are you experiencing? You know, mm -hmm. are you experiencing hot flashes? Are you experiencing vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, you know, all of those things. Um, what does your bone health look like? Did your mom have osteoporosis and a hip fracture? Have you yourself had a hip fracture? Do you have osteopenia? There's a lot that goes into creating that risk benefit equation. And so, you know, there are risks to, horm to hormone therapy, you know, there are risks, risks for breast cancer, and they're finding out more and more that yes, there is a risk there, it is very small, but it's a piece of information that you need to take into account when you're uh, deciding if you want to take it, and if you're a doctor deciding if this is appropriate for a patient. Um, blood clots is probably even a bigger risk than uh, breast cancer. And so you want to make sure that the patient's never had a blood clot, that they don't have a genetic blood clotting disorder. Right. Ask about the family members, things about that. 
Um, so once you gather all that information, you want to make sure that if you're going to give them hormone therapy, you want to make sure that the therapy is going to work for what they're experiencing. You know, if someone just comes to me and says, I'm gaining weight, but I don't have hot flashes. I sleep well. My bones are great. One thing we know about hormone therapy is that it does not help with body composition. In fact, there is some evidence to suggest that, that losing fat is more difficult when you're taking hormone therapy. Hormone therapy does not fix your insulin because when you give hormone therapy, you are not recreating your 30-year-old hormonal cell. The regulation is gone. The receptors on the tissues are different. Your tissues respond differently to estrogen as you get older. So it's absolutely impossible to recreate your 30-year-old self. But hormone therapy is good for treating certain symptoms in certain conditions, like in preventing osteoporosis. It's really great for that. Uh, it's really great for hot flashes, really great for vaginal dryness. Um, and there may be some health benefits in women who are taking it for those indications if taken early on in uh, their menopausal transition. So you brought up body composition a, a couple of moments ago. And while we're talking about, um, while we're still answering this question about weight gain, what about testosterone, right? Testosterone hormone therapy, right? We need testosterone to help build that lean muscle tissue. And a lot of women who have gained a lot of weight have more fat than they have on lean muscle tissue. And we can tell that from a DEXA scan, which I'm sure you do with some of your patients. Um, I know I suggest it to all of my clients. And that DEXA scan will give us a lot of information. But testosterone is also kind of like your your motivation, uh, your motivating hormone, right? It helps us stay motivated and focus and keeps our mood swings in, in check. Uh, it helps us build that lean muscle mass. And when we build lean muscle mass, we're able to burn more fat. Um, yes and no to all of that. So I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. So testosterone, the data for testosterone therapy, it is most effective for hypoactive sexual desire disorder in postmenopausal women. And what that basically means, that's a fancy way of saying low libido that is bothersome to me. And so testosterone is very effective um, in treating that. And it's not FDA approved to do so. It's an off-label use for testosterone. Um, there are no FDA approved products that are dosed appropriately for women. Women require about one-tenth as much as men. Um, but you can get, if you know your compounding pharmacies, there's one that I've been using for, in my fertility practice for over a decade. Um, I use that one when I prescribe testosterone for my patients. So we know that that is a very effective way to deal with that libido and low drive. When it comes to body composition, there was a wonderful study, I, it slips my mind who did it, um, where they looked at body composition analysis at different doses of testosterone. And what they found was, is that the only time you saw an increase in muscle mass was when you were taking testosterone that took your serum levels into the male range, which is not a safe practice for mm -hmm. women. In that range, it can cause irreversible side effects like deepening of the voice, uh, temporal balding patterns, male pat pattern balding. It can also potentially cause enlargement of the clitoris and um, irritability. 
Now, from a metabolic standpoint, what people don't realize about testosterone is that it can make that insulin resistance even worse. Think about women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of your listeners know what yeah. that is. It's a very common disorder in reproductive age women where the body is creating or producing too many male hormones. And one of the things we see that goes along with polycystic ovarian syndrome is insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So when you are using testosterone at these high levels, yes, you might gain muscle mass, but you might actually gain fat mass too, because you're making your insulin work less Mm. well. And you're subjecting yourself to side effects and uncertain long-term impact of those higher dose testosterone levels. At the lower doses, the ones that keep Mm -hmm. the serum testosterone in the female range, those levels of testosterone do not alter body composition. It may make your mood greater. It may help with the libido, but it's not going to change your body composition. Let's stick on with um, body composition, because one of the questions I had, I had told everyone that you were a, not only just a physician, but you went above and beyond with your fitness expertise and your nutrition expertise. So we have a lot of um, fitness oriented questions. The first one is why, why is body composition so important to women's health, whether you're in menopause or not? What is, what is it about getting a DEXA scan and, and knowing your body composition that, that is so important to aging? Well, when we think about, I, I separate body composition from bone density. Those are those yeah. are two separate things. If we think about body composition, a lot of people think of that as, as lean muscle mass, right? Body composition is more the end product of healthy nutrition, fitness, and mental health. It's more the end product rather than what you are, what your, your main, um, what your main objective is. Your main objective, the main objective to your healthiest self is to um, optimize your muscle health, mm-hmm. optimize your bone health. And the way you do that is through exercise, fueling appropriately, protein, and again, managing that stress response. And the third piece of that equation, of course, is your cardiovascular health, because one in three women will die from a cardiovascular event. It's the number one cause of death in women, and yeah. I think it's worldwide. So cardiovascular health, very important. Bone and muscle health is right shoulder to shoulder with cardiovascular health. And when you take the steps to optimize those things, the body composition falls in line. So there isn't one number, lean muscle mass number. What is the percentage? There is no one that is good for everybody. What optimal body composition looks like is different for everybody. Um, And a lot of that is based on genetics. What is your body type? We know there are three different body types. There are Mm -hmm. ectomorphs, endomorphs, mesomorphs, and many people are mixtures of one or two of those Mm -hmm. or two or three of those. So what ideal body composition looks like looks different for everybody. But if you focus on good practices to promote your cardiovascular health, good practice to promote your muscle health, because muscles are really at the, it's the prime determiner of your metabolism because Mm -hmm. muscles use sugar um, second only to the brain and the body is the biggest utilizer of glucose. Um, If you pay attention to those things, the appropriate body mass index for you or, or a body composition for you will fall into place. But what would you say is an out of range level of body fat percentage on a, a midlife woman, for example? You know, I work I with can't a lot give of women, but would you, I can't s- give you a number. 
but I if you looked at if you looked at like 30% or 40%, wouldn't you wouldn't you say that that is just much too high for this person? I I I can't give you a, a solid number. Huh. I mean, the the system that's used right now in the medical literature, the body mass index is yeah. woefully yeah. inadequate. Woefully inadequate. And unfortunately, there is no other system to take its place. So I can tell you that BMI of 25 is ideal. I can tell you that BMI of 30 is obese. I can tell you that BMI of 35 is morbidly obese, but it's not a perfect system. And like I yeah. said, in terms of body composition, you know, what lean muscle mass is the ideal percentage, we have no data, nothing that leads us. So because we, the system that's in place and that's well published is insufficient, we then are needing to take every individual into their, you know, as, as the case by case basis. So when I have a client, I don't have a chart that tells me what percentage she should be. I take her whole entire story, her situation, her circumstances, you know, what kind of gym access does she, does she have? You know, all of these things play a role in her optimum self, but it really isn't driven by numbers. I love that you have such a personalized approach to every single person, which is, you know, how I work as well. Everyone's equation is different. How you get there is different. Sure. Um, wow. Really interesting. Let's talk about creatine. I have a question from one of my listeners. She currently lifts weights three to four days per week. She's postmenopausal and she's concerned about bulking up and looking too masculine if she takes creatine, especially if she's already on HRT, including testosterone. So what do your, I, I know creatine goes much beyond um, the health of our muscles and has a lot of other health benefits for us, but could you explain what creatine is? I, I don't think a lot of my listeners really know what it, what it is and what its role in our health is. So creatine is like the battery juice for the batteries of our cells. And the batteries of our cells are called mitochondria. They it, literally, they're the little powerhouses in every single cell in the body that gives the cell the energy to do the things that that cell is supposed to do. And when we think about mitochondria, a lot of times we think about our muscles. And what the mitochondria do is it helps muscles to not get fatigued during exercise. And so what creatine is, it's, it's like the battery juice for the little mitochondria in your cells. So if you make sure you have enough creatine around, and creatine is also a naturally occurring right. substance. You don't need to take it, you get it from animal protein. Yeah. That will make sure that your mitochondria have all the energy that it needs to fuel the cell's functions, You know, whether it be muscle or brain or whatever. So it, it's good for that. Now, it also, like when bodybuilders use it for, um, for the purpose of bulking up, they're loading and they're doing a lot of different things that we don't typically do when we are suggesting creatine for um, people who are not competitive physique athletes. Yeah. Now, yeah. what I can tell somebody is that I'm assuming that uh, your listener is on right. a level of testosterone that is within the female physiologic yes. range. I would really hope that her yes. doctor is making sure of that. She is not going to bulk up even if she tried, um, because when we get to this age in menopause, we are hanging on to every possible muscle and bone fiber that we can, because this yeah. stage of life, unfortunately, is very catabolic. So even if she wanted to bulk up, she's not going to. 
and she should weight train. That is fantastic that she's doing that. If the testosterone is in a safe level and she's feeling good on it, kudos to her. The creatine is just going to help her muscles function more efficiently. I usually tell people in terms of dosing it, because what sometimes people notice is a retention of water. They yeah, feel yeah. bloated, not bulky, not in the bulky sense that people think about getting big muscles or whatever. I'm talking about like water retention. I usually suggest that if you're vegan or vegetarian and you're not eating much animal protein, that five grams a day is a good amount, whether you're working out or not every day. If you're somebody that eats animal protein and so, you know, you eat beef, chicken, poultry on a regular basis, you probably only need about three. Mm. So it's important not to take too much of it because many people will retain water. And a lot of times the way you remedy that is you just decrease the dose. So do you use it as just a supplement? So it's just a daily supplement, whether or not you work out that day or not. And does timing Correct. matter? Correct. No, that usually there's some, there's some debate about whether timing matters. Mm -hmm. I like to use it when I take it myself and I love creatine for myself. I put it in my, my workout drink. So I have a drink, a concoction that I make that has creatine in it. I drink it before, during, and after my workout. And the reason I do it then is because when you're training, your muscles are thirsty for whatever yeah. it is you're giving it, whether it's glucose or whether it's protein or creatine and your body is more apt to absorb it when it's thirsty and looking for it than mm -hmm. when it's not. So I personally think that timing could matter. Um, and so that's why for myself, I take it as part of my pre post workout drink. And that is a great segue into our next question. Uh, some woman asked, I don't like to eat first thing in the morning. Is it okay to work out in a fasted state? And um, I have a question on here. What's an optimal pre-workout drink in a circumstance like that? So fasting and especially working out fasting is not recommended in women in perimenopause and menopause. I think in reproductive age women, there may be benefits in certain populations. But once you hit this time when those hormones are changing and our stress response is more easily activated, the thing that activates that stress response is, is that fasted state. And so if you then work out on top of that fasted state, you are going to really jack up those, uh, that stress hormone pathway. And that may make it more difficult to lose weight. It may make mm -hmm. it more difficult for your muscles to function. Um, I defer to Dr. Stacy Sims in this regard. She does a whole thing on why fasting is not a good strategy for uh, perimenopausal and menopausal women. And a lot of it has to do with activating that stress response. And there's a lot of data behind it that suggests yeah. there's no difference and that it doesn't do any good. Yeah. So I always recommend that my midlife women do not, uh, do not fast. I am so glad to hear you say that because so many women try to, it's like a competition, how long they can go without eating. So for me, my suggestion is stop eating after a well-balanced dinner and wait until your, your first morning meal, your breakfast, you know, whenever that is right. That that's, yeah, I mean, a, that's a normal fast just overnight. That's right. Like 
like 11, 11 hours or so, 11, 12 yeah. hours, you know, mm -hmm. seven, eight o'clock till seven, eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. That is appropriate. Yeah. That's what we were designed for as human beings. Yeah. Um, some could argue that we were designed for longer term fasts, you know, when uh, back in the caveman days when we were hunting food and there was no other option, but our bodies have evolved since then. Um, yeah. and, uh, as, our, as our grocery stores have as well. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> so, so I agree with you that um, that time from the, you know your balanced dinner yeah. to the time of the morning that is an appropriate fast, and no more than that is needed. So, back to a pre-workout drink. What if someone is waking up and their workout has to be you know five thirty, six, six thirty in the morning, and they don't want to now do it in a fasted state? What does that pre-workout drink look like? It looks different for every person. I remember uh, a good friend of mine, her name is Mari. Uh, Mari is a type one diabetic, great athlete. And she and I used to, uh, back when I was teaching group fitness, we, we both used to teach body <laughs> combat. We'd have these early morning classes and, you know, I would always grab my, my shake. I'd make my shake, you know, 45 minutes before and I'm good. But she, it would sit in her stomach. She'd say, I can't, I can't put anything in there at, you know, for, I need at least an hour, hour and a half. So everybody's stomach emptying speed is different. Uh, people's, you know, when food sits well with people is a very circadian driven thing. You know, you, mm -hmm. you meet a lot of people who say, I just can't eat in the morning. So you got to have something. And so for some people, Maybe it's a half of an apple with some peanut butter. Maybe it's simple like that. Maybe it's uh, a half of a banana. Um, I think the general rule and you can, you know, people can trial and error what works for them and what timing works for them because it is different for everybody. Have a little bit of protein and a little bit of carb. And if you can make it a whole food whole food source like cheese a little wedge of cheese has some protein in it some nut butter has some protein in it a, a half of an apple you'd be surprised at how long that can sustain you I mean that gives you really really good sustainable uh doesn't spike your insulin it's very low glycemic it's because of the fiber that's in the apple so fruits like that fiber when I used to play competitive tennis I'd have a banana in my bag and I could just down half the banana in between sets uh, banana used to sit well with me but Ideally, a little bit of carb, a little bit of protein that doesn't just sit in your stomach, um, probably 30 minutes or more before you work out will work well. Yeah, and I'm glad you're mentioning the timing as well, because there are so many people who are eating a you know crappy protein bar while they're walking into the class they're about to take. And that's just doing you absolutely nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I was writing an article about something and I had queried some of my endurance athlete friends of, you know, what do you take with you on your long endurance mm -hmm. ride, you know? And the, the 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 variety of answers was astounding. They'd make like their own trail mix, like with raisins or dates and nuts. And that would sit well with them because you're on these these long ultra runs or these 200 mile bike bike rides. You need something that isn't going to hinder your, your digestion. Right. You need something that's going to give you energy, give you fuel, but not going to sit in your stomach. Trail mixes were across the board, some of the faves of mm. people. Other people would chop up, and this is one of my favorites too, um, little pieces of peanut butter and jelly on Dave's bread. Dave's bread is like a whole grain, high protein type of bread. Mm -hmm. Make little squares of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on Dave's bread, just some bite-sized ones, have a couple of those. 
Um, so there's definitely some ways that at least my endurance friends have gotten creative with fueling um, while, they're, while they're training. So some of those suggestions may uh, work for the person who is working out at 5 a.m. and doesn't have time or the desire to eat something big. So I'm one of those people. I like to work out early in the morning before my workday starts, and I do not want to have food in my stomach. So I usually put a concoction of different electrolytes and pre-workout mixes together, maybe a nitric oxide booster. So, you know, there's a lot of us who don't want any food in our stomach. So is there a place for BCAAs and EAAs? So these are branched chain amino acids, for those of you who don't know, or essential amino acids in a pre-workout um, scenario. Absolutely. I put them in my drink all the time. Um, and it's great for brain fog, by the way, mm -hmm. for a lot of people yeah. who are suffering from brain fog. If you just like fill a big camel back water bottle with some BCAAs and sip it throughout the day it might help with the alertness a little bit. Um, but yes, absolutely. And the good thing about BCAAs is that it's a ready source of amino acids for your muscles to have available to them to rebuild. It helps to minimize the degradation of muscle for fuel in the middle of a workout. Um, your body will use sugar first. It'll probably use fat next. And when it runs out of those things, it'll start attacking the muscle. You want to minimize that from happening. So BCAAs are great for, for many different reasons. I also think, you know, like you touched on briefly, women struggle to eat enough protein and how important that is throughout the day. I, I can tell you probably 95% of the women I work with are not eating enough protein. So I do like the BCAAs and the EAAs because at least I know they're getting in some more amino acids while we're working on this journey of incorporating more, more healthy proteins into their daily diet. Oh, for sure. For sure. And yes, it is a big struggle with clients that I see as well. Even yeah. the ones that eat animal protein, you know, they really yeah. still struggle, um, you know, to get that, to get that protein. And, and you know what I think it is, this is just my opinion. This isn't evidence-based at all, but you know, women in this age group and, and you're there too, we grew up in the eighties when skinny was in, thin was yeah. in and you were kind of looked at funny if you finished the big steak that you ordered at the restaurant. There was this pressure to yeah. not eat, you know, because someone might look at you, oh my God, she's eating all of that. You know, there was a lot of that stigma attached to eating yeah. um, that I think a lot of us carry with us. And then when we're in this age group, when we start experiencing these, these changes in our body composition, it just kind of goes back to that. You know, all of those, those um, stigmas and all those things that we struggled with as, as teenagers come rearing their head and roaring back again. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's part of the barrier to women is just making themselves eat because it kind of goes against that, that stigma. Oh my God, I can't eat too much. If I eat too much, I'm going to get fat. Yeah. But if you eat too little, you're going to get fat too. <laughs> because exactly. Because hold on to fat and, and it's, it's not going to let go. That animal-based protein is, has so many bioavailable nutrients in it. It's so satiating. And, you know, if you focus on hitting those protein macros and making sure you're getting optimal amounts of protein first every day, it's going to satiate you to the point where you're not going to be drawn to snacking and grazing on, you know, chips and sugar throughout the day. It really helps. I was a carnivore for a couple of years during the pandemic. Just I wanted to experiment with it. And it really um, showed me a lot about my eating habits and how much I really enjoyed eating animal-based proteins. I have half a thyroid, which I've been dealing with for 20, over 25 years, which is also how I have hair. I have chronic hair shedding and loss. Of course, I've re reversed that now. Um, but the carnivore diet and eating all that animal-based protein not only helped me um, 
regulate my thyroid because it was getting all of these amazing micronutrients, but it, it helped my hair grow and helped my skin and helped so many other things outside and, and my fitness as well, you know, building that lean muscle tissue. Yeah, without so, a doubt, it definitely makes it easy. It makes it easier. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do have a lot of clients who are vegan and vegetarian. Um, if, if fish, dairy, and eggs are part of their diet, I think it makes it a little bit easier. I think vegans struggle a little bit more because they're very limited yes. to plant proteins. But I can tell you, and this is what I tell my, my, my clients who are vegan, is that there are some really, really good quality pea protein powders out there. Um, and the way that they need to really supplement is a, I tell them to take five, five grams of creatine a day. Yeah. Um, and second, have a shake, have a shake or two made with this high quality pea protein. And, you know, if you like lentils and beans and, you know, some of the other things that are high protein and plant-based, um, you can get there, you can get there. So even, even if you're, you have a limited diet, like a vegan does, there's still solutions for you out there to get that protein you need. Absolutely. And I do coach vegans and you really have to be mindful about your diet and supplementation because you're just not like you're saying about the creatine, you're not going to get everything you need from a vegan or a plant-based diet. So you have to work with someone who really knows what they're doing. Agreed. Sure. Let's talk about post-workout nutrition. So growing up and I, my five kids are super athletic. There was always this, um, this, theory of having this 45 minute window post weight resistant workout that you had to get in protein and carbohydrates, right? So you brought your protein powder and maybe some carb powder to the gym. You shook it up after your workout and you just gulped it down. It wasn't like one of these leisurely, you know, smoothies you made. And it was there for a, a purpose to replace that lost glycogen in your muscle tissue. Is that still a thing or how are we supposed to eat after a weight workout? And does that look different from a cardio workout? That's a really good question. And I would have to defer to the exercise physiologists about exactly what is better after a power lifting workout versus cardio. But I think what it comes down to, again, just like eating before workout, some people, you know, their stomachs just can't deal with eating something immediately after a workout. Yes, I've read lots about, and I do believe in the 30-minute window, but really what some studies show is that all the way out to an hour, and sometimes even two hours, there is still benefit to be had. Yeah. So if you're one of those people who just cannot imagine putting <laughs> yourself, you know, putting something in your stomach after you've just done a grueling CrossFit workout or a grueling run, don't worry about it. You're still going to get benefit. Um, you know, an hour, even two hours after that. So, you know, like I said, I'd have to defer to the exercise physiologist about whether or not there is any real published data on, you know, what types of food are better after a powerlifting workout versus, versus endurance. Um, I think what you'll find is like endurance athletes, like people who just do endurance, uh, they're trained for Ironmans and marathons and things like that. They're, they're going to look a little bit different than the power lifter, the person that only does power lifting and no endurance. I think those power lifters, lifters are going to need a lot more glucose, whereas the uh, runners and the marathoners, they're going to be burning more fat because yeah. they're going to be running in those ranges where, you know, it's more sustained and, and, and fat is going to be utilized. Uh, that's why, you know, that's why these, these ultra runners are, are have such a lean body habit is that they got no fat because that's what's being burned. 
So I think it probably makes a difference whether you are an endurance athlete or whether you're a powerlifting athlete, but workout to workout, I'm not sure it makes that big a difference. I think if you just go by the rule of having a little bit of carb and a little bit of protein in whatever snack you have, I think that you can't go wrong with that. So outside of the elite athlete, and we're talking about me, I'm a, you know, I work out six days a week, love getting into the gym and lifting heavy. Um, what is the most important form of exercise for a midlife woman? And so before you answer that, sometimes I've asked this question and people say, it's whatever that person loves to do. And I don't necessarily really agree with that. Yes, of course, I want this person to love what they're doing. But if they love walking every day for 40 minutes with, you know, three other ladies, and they're just strolling, and they, it, that's not going to move the dial for them. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. For midlife women, I think the best fitness is varied fitness. And I'm going to go back to my CrossFit roots, constantly varied functional movements at high intensity. And so the reason why functional fitness and that's like CrossFit style workouts are so effective for midlife women is that it's hitting those three things that I talked about before. It's hitting your cardiovascular health. It's hitting your muscle health. It's hitting your bone health because there's such a variety of movement in functional fitness type workouts in CrossFit type workouts, it constantly keeps the body guessing and it keeps it stimulated. So to your point, if you are just walking, you're not going to reap the benefits of weight training. Your muscles are not going to respond the same way to walking as they would respond if you're doing squats or deadlifts or bench presses. Um, you know, in the same, same vein, I've got some incredibly fit athletes who they're runners. That's all they do. And yes, you can probably be running marathons into your 60s, 70s, and 80s, but in the meantime, your muscles are starting to atrophy. You really need to add some weight training to that to balance out your fitness. So balanced fitness with a variety of stuff that mixes up intensity. We shouldn't be avoiding intensity at this stage of life because mm -hmm. yes, Cortisol is something we have to manage, but it's yeah. something that we need because you will not get fitter without your cortisol response. That's your, that's your stress response. The stress right. response is good because it gets us fitter, but what we have to do at this stage of life is manage that response. That means warm up, cool down, tissue care, foam rolling, sleep, fueling, recovery. Those things are much more important. So you kind of have to mix it up. So maybe you have two or three days a week of really high intensity stuff, but maybe the other four or five are just, you know, moderate intensity and maybe a couple of active recovery days where you do just mobility and just tissue care, or maybe you just go for a walk on one of those days, but mix yeah, it up. Yeah. And, and I think that's that. really the, the best fitness um, for women in this stage of life, because it hits the main things that are going to keep us healthy and vital. Yeah, great answer. So we're coming to a close. I always ask everybody the same question. What are three things that women can start doing today at their home to optimize their overall health and fitness? So the number one thing, and with you know how technology has evolved since COVID, you can do this from your home. I know I do, is to find a coach. I think yeah. coaches are amazing. I have an online coach um, who I've been working with for four, um, going on five years now, five years this month, I think. And I don't know what I'd do without her. She objectively takes a look at my fitness, my nutrition. She is not afraid to tell me what I don't want to hear um, because that's what a coach should do. And that's the way yeah. you move the needle is to be able so to- So do you hear that coach. everyone? She is a physician. She's a double boards physician and she has a coach herself. 
Okay. Yes, no excuses. You need one. <laughs> yes, that. absolutely. So, so, so the, the coaching aspect of it. Yeah. The second thing is to be willing to objectively look at your fitness, your nutrition, and your mindset piece, mm. you know, your, your stress reduction strategies. If, if you're not willing to objectively look at it and you have, you know, tunnel vision toward one specific thing, it's going to be very hard to move the needle if you're not willing to see the forest for the trees. So mm -hmm. taking a step back and just being honest with yourself about, okay, where's my fitness? Where's my nutrition? Where is my mindset? Mm -hmm. That and then working with your coach, mm -hmm. which I just mentioned, number one, that is huge. Yeah. Those two things together are going to move the needle. And then the third thing really is about mindset and stress reduction. I cannot stress that enough, you know, especially in this stage of life. We are so busy. I cannot tell you how busy I am right now, um, but and I, and I have to work at it, too. You've got to take that time to get your headspace right and to dial down all of those stressors that we have. You may have aging parents. You may have, like me, a son that just got his license two weeks ago. That <laughs> is what drives the needle for me all the way over into the red. You know, we're in that stage of life where we have all these stressors. Our jobs are stressful and we're losing our hormones and our stress response is going off the rails. So we really need to pay attention to it because then that's going to make everything else you do, your fitness, your nutrition, yeah. it's going to make it work better instead of always going against the grain of your body, trying to get back down to earth from a, from a stressful day. So those are my three. Those Coach, are excellent. Objectivity and mindset. Mm -hmm. Love it. Well, Dr. Carla, it was such a, a pleasure to have you join us today. I know my community is going to walk away with so many nuggets um, and curiosity, right? You have to be curious about all of this so you can start to motivate yourself and learn and educate yourself and be your own advocate. So where can people find you? And I, I, I do have all this information I'm gonna to add to the show notes for you, but where would you like people to find you? Sure, so my website is www.drcarlad.com. Um, you can search for me by name on Facebook, just Carla DiGirolamo. Um, I have a blog, it's called Athletic Aging. So it's www.athleticaging, all one word, dot B-L-O-G. And Instagram is at Dr. Underscore Carla underscore D. Great. I will add all of that to the show notes to, to make it very easy for everyone. And thank you so much again for all of your time and your generosity and your expertise. And um, I hope everybody enjoyed that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Jill. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.